Our next presenter is Frank Trotter. He's president of Everbank Direct. And Everbank, as a lot of you know, is an unusual bank in many ways. For starters, it's a bank that did not take any TARP money after the 08 crisis. So if you can imagine that, this is a bank that doesn't rely on government bailouts, which is just kind of weird. Um, but they think of themselves as a bank that, that thinks and operates outside the box. And I think that's true. I think they also operate outside the circle, the triangle, parallelogram. They, uh, so they offer foreign currency denominated products of, of all stripes. So if you're one of those people that wakes up in the middle of the night and says, gee, I wish I had a uh, Polish Zloty CD, well, you're in luck. Everbank is your bank, and uh, Frank Trotter is your guy. So please welcome Frank Trotter to the stage. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about currencies today. You know, over the last five, six years, uh, most of my presentations for half an hour um, have consisted of about 80 excruciatingly detailed slides about the U.S. and the global economy. And sometimes I would get to the end of these presentations and realize I really hadn't provided that punchline. Well, this is what you should do. Here's how you should do it. What asset classes should you be involved in? And so I'm going to really turn back a little bit here today and spend a little time uh, really on this intersection of resources and currencies. Um, I think you know what Eric mentioned, we're Everbank, uh, New York Stock Exchange public company these days, EVER, a few uh, contact points. Um, but instead of going through something that I think really most of you have digested, you know, I think everybody here has a pretty good feel for the U.S. economy. There's nuances, there's subtleties, there's differences, and in the last couple of weeks there's been a lot of black swans, right, uh, for the, uh, the, the markets. But I think you know, pretty much everybody here has covered a lot of those things. And so I'm going to turn back and really talk about currencies. Uh, Eric mentioned we do offer currencies. One of the many things we do are about an $18 billion organization. We do all the regular banking. We do the global markets, investment management, and so on. But I'm really going to go back to the fundamentals, currencies and resources. And just a couple of things here to mention up front. You know, tomorrow, uh, everybody knows Chuck Butler. Uh, is doing a presentation here on the main stage um, uh, at 9 a.m. on Friday, and I don't think you want to miss that. Last year, uh, if, if you were here, everybody, he, he got a little bit of singing on the stage. Perhaps we'll see that again, perhaps not. I, I won't foreshadow that. And Chuck's got a breakout tomorrow afternoon at 2.40. And we have one other presentation this afternoon where we're going to get into a little more detail uh, about what I have to say today. Chris Gaffney, um, who has been quoted heavily in Wall Street Journal, CNBC, New York Times, and so on, uh, will be joining me in a breakout this afternoon at 2.50. So I invite you to come to those and get a little more detail about what we're, we're covering here today. So what are we going to cover this morning? A um, couple things. One is just a rapid-fire history of money. Currencies are money. There are a lot of different forms. We talk about the re what I call the three phases of recent currency movement. You know, why should you be invested in this? What's been happening? But then, you know, where should currencies be in a portfolio? Uh, we're not sort of this bland, put them away and asset class and never change anything type of organization, but where do they fit? And then, you know, obviously, which ones should you consider if you're willing to take a position? Is it Polish Lottie, as uh, Eric mentioned? Probably not, but possibly. Um, but we will we'll move from there. 
So the first thing you have to know about money is money is a fiction. You kind of go, what does that mean? It's a fiction. It's really all about belief, and it's all about trust. You know, it's, it really doesn't exist. I don't care if you think gold or other metals might be money, whether currencies that we see today, fiat or otherwise, are money. It's really just a fiction. It's just a placeholder. If you want to go back and go into detail, if you have trouble getting to sleep, this is a book for you. I've read it a couple times. Uh, you can understand I'm a little bit of a wonky banker as a result. But A Financial History of Western Europe, by, uh, edited by Charles Kindleberger, is your book. And this goes back and covers the history of money in Western Europe. You have another couple thousand years of the history of money in China and other places. But go back to some of this detail. But those who ignore history, of course, are doomed to repeat it. And if you don't go through this book, you may be doomed to repeat many mistakes in the currency and the money business. So how did money develop? What is money? Well, first of all, money is just simply a means of payment, and it's a unit of account. It's our place marker. Doesn't have anything to do with anything that we normally think of, gee, how much money do you have? How much, it's how much value. And currency is just a representation, our representation of that money. US dollars, Canadian dollars, Australian dollars, euros, and so on. And how did it develop? I mean, let's go back in history just a little bit here and think about how money developed. You know, initially we're sitting in our caves all over the savanna, uh, and we're just sharing. You know, somebody says, I'll go uh, you know, kill a boar for you, and you can go you know, clean the tent. That's pretty straightforward. Barter, same sort of thing, except that in this case, we actually expect some sort of return. You know, the sharing is one thing, Barters the next. And some of these are pretty obvious, but if you think about it, in a small community where you've known everybody, you're probably crossbred and interrelated with everybody, it's not really necessary to have that unit of account. And then almost immediately, credit. I'll go ahead and kill the boar for you today, and next week you do this. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Uh, is the classic. Credit comes before any actual representation of money, which is physical representation. Now, when I start talking about physical representation, pretty much everybody here is going to say that's gold. That's the first money, right? And it's still the, perhaps the best currency or the best money. Well, it takes a lot of different forms. I don't know if anybody's read Milton Friedman's old book on early money. I mean, the story of the Yap Islanders and a lot of other things where there's a you know, big stone out in the middle of the harbor, and that's the entire community's money and you have a fractional interest in this stone that's sitting in the middle of the harbor because it fell off the boat on the way in. But we think about it more in terms of metals. It could be tin, could be timber, could be food, could be oil. Uh, but physical representation is just, again, that storehouse of value in a unit of exchange. And then came coins. The thing we really begin to focus on as money and we begin to understand it, whether it's stamped out by an individual, whether it's initiated by an early government, uh, whether or a city-state, you know, coins begin the process. And what it allows you to do is have two different tribes exchange in commerce. And maybe it's next door, maybe it's across the street, um, but it's not going to be very far away. But then we move into a whole other area. You have the trade fairs in Europe, 
you, know, you have to travel for weeks, if not months, carrying all your goods from uh, Venice up to uh, you know, Germany, Austria, Netherlands, whatever. And it's, it's really a pain to stick a whole cart full of your goods, as well as two or three carts full of tin or gold or silver or whatever, and carry them all the way up there and get them all the way back. And so you get bills of exchange. You have a banker, sort of the beginning of a banker, somebody who's piled up all your gold, silver, tin, whatever, back at the shop and comes with a piece of paper that says, I promise to ship that gold to you. And many of the early exchange groups really began that way. Uh, moving money back and forth between all the different uh, trade fairs. And then gets to my favorite part, banking. And it's interesting, since uh, 1691, there has not been an innovation in banking. I, I can say that as a theoretically innovative banker. And that's when banks moved from simply piling stuff up and allowing you to take it in and out to actually allowing a check to be drawn on a bank. And at that point, while they were still bank, not banks in the terms that we think about, they actually just held assets for a fee. But it allowed you to use a piece of paper, let's say um, in the Netherlands, to buy something in London. And eventually, my bank would transfer that gold or silver. The reason they actually started doing these checks was because it was primarily in tin, uh, which is a good deal more difficult to move around. And that is where we began real banking. And of course, that just begins disasters. Um, there is a checkered history that we're working on some presentations we'll be doing in the fall about the history of currency disasters. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's paper, fiat, gold, silver, whatever commodity it is, there's been disasters along the way. And it's really just a great history of the madness of crowds. Belief and trust ultimately are, are, are erased. And I'm going to divert for just a second. There's actually a fictional account that kind of speaks to what value is. Um, Neil Stevenson, in Cryptonomic, and I don't know if anybody read it, it's a New York, old New York Times bestseller, has a group of people in the northern Philippines who happen to control a lot of gold that... Uh, in his fictional account, the Japanese and the Germans left behind after World War II. And they pull out a stack that at the time is worth 120 million bucks, and they'd like to use it. In this case, like real estate in 2008, it actually had zero value. They have a large stack of gold that could be melted down, but they were surrounded by insurgents. They had government troops all over the place, and the government of the Philippines would kill anybody that actually showed up with any of this gold. So value, as Rick said earlier, may not necessarily be the market price. You have to be able to move money and exchange it for something, to pay for the conference, to get on the plane to come up here, to buy a company, to buy a mine, to do something. So money is a, an interesting uh, concept in that regard. But what is money today? It's funny, Knapp actually made this statement, money is what the state says it is, and that kind of hurts. It's exactly how US dollars and Canadian dollars and all the other currencies are stated. But he came upon this in 1192. So this is not a new concept, and it still hurts when we say it. But what is money today? Let's say, what, so what does the state say it is today? Well, finally, some numbers. Everybody goes, oh, enough of the theory. We're getting into the numbers. Well, here's the US Federal Reserve balance sheet. This is what right now the Fed says money is. 
Now, it's kind of interesting. I think you've all probably read and reread the Fed balance sheet a number of times in the last couple of years. And probably like us, you say, the world is going to end. There's going to be hyperinflation. Rates are going to soar. The world is, the, the currency is going to go to zero. And you know, over the last four or five years, it hasn't. And that's really frustrating to all of us that um, have been kind of in that camp for a while. And even now, you know, the year-to-date change, that uh, QE that they're supposedly uh, slowing down over the next few months has already done about $60 billion a month in treasury purchases. Now, if you do your math, that's about 80% on a run rate basis of the treasury issues. So we continue to grow this money balance sheet from the US Fed. Now, I'm going to come back to this later, but I'll note that foreign central bank holdings of treasuries are actually down this year. And we're going to get to rates in just a minute, which is the price of money. So what is money today? Let's take M2. I don't see any change in this trend line from about 1960 forward. You know, 2008, 2000, uh, 1990 recession, you can see all the grayscales. It just keeps going up. And you hear so much today in terms of value about the multiplier, right? Everybody know what the multiplier is? Anybody care what the multiplier is? The multiplier is just the stock of money divided by uh, or excuse me, the GDP nominal divided by the stock of money. So how many times is money used on a yearly, yearly basis? What I think is interesting about this is really since 1990 when it just took off in terms of a multiplier. We were in the tech boom, the, uh, uh, the stock market was soaring and you know, everybody's day trading. But really since 2000, we've been on this huge downward trend and it's not just since 2008 that the money multiplier has dropped off. It's dropped off significantly since then. But it, if you look at it, it really began well before that. And so the central bank who thinks they can control the world because of the uh, increase in the money stock in, find, finds it increasingly harder to do anything except possibly create hyperinflation down the road. So what's the price of money? This is the U.S. 10-year Treasury uh, note, and we are at a, still at a 50-year low. This is the price of money. And I think many of us, myself included, with the Fed action, with the federal deficit, with all the different pieces, have felt that the market would tell us that there will be inflation coming and bid up the price of Treasuries, having that yield rise and rise and rise. But still, we're at a 50-year low. Now, in the last... 15 months since May of last year, of course, it rose 100 basis points just virtually in one month after Ben Bernanke kind of said, well, we might stop TARP, or excuse me, no, this might start QE. Well, since then, it's been kind of odd. It's in the 240 handle, like 248 or so uh, this morning. And this is an indicator, you know, both uh, Rick and I were on a panel a couple of months ago, and what do we, we were asked what our biggest concern was, was the, the Treasury uh, note, um, it feels like it's in a bubble, whether it's from the Fed, whether it's from central governments, from other people buying. But this money rate really is indicative of the world's view that not much is going on. And that's kind of a weird feeling, isn't it? Because it really feels like we should be starting to have significant, significant inflation. We all feel it. The price of the hotel here, the price of the hotel in New York or St. Louis or wherever you are, all your food stuffs are up. Uh, all of us who have a little 
larger than a median income are feeling inflation. But it's not at a level we might have predicted given the balance sheet size of the Fed or the Fed's fiscal deficit. If you look at the price of money around the world, this is a variety of sovereign debt yields. You know, this is the 10-year rate, and there really isn't much that stands out. And I think Mr. Market here just is telling us that economic activity is extremely low everywhere around the world. Is this, not, is this news? Not really. But when you start to think about the, 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 the way people are talking about the US economy today, that it's, it's, it's starting to burgeon or have a tentative recovery. Um, you look around the world, you know, France is the current um, you know, worst place to be in Europe, low rates there. Even Australia, only 100 basis points higher here than the United States. And some of the harder, worst credits, Greece at 6%. I mean, it's, has the level of bankruptcy in Greece changed in the last 18 months? Have they put their entire fiscal house in order? Have they sealed it all up? Are they going to be able to pay their debts back? And 6%, that's, you know, you, you, car loans are at that level. You, are they better than an a, a individual in the United States buying a car? I don't think so. So rates around the world really have not come back up to any serious extent. So what drives a currency value? You know, Rick talked a little bit earlier about picking resource companies. You know, what you have to talk about in an interview, how you discuss uh, the prospects with, with somebody purveying that. So what do you do with a currency or with anything like that? Well, it's all about relative value. This is the the most relativist area that you're ever going to invest in. And it's relative fiscal situation, how much of a deficit, or well, if you're not familiar with the term surplus in a government situation, how much of a trade balance, what kind of activity is there. And ultimately, it's a money supply differential. It's a very wonky way to think about it, but if your money supply is growing faster than my money supply, your currency value should be depreciating. That's just math and that will ultimately play out. But there's other things that deal in currencies. Currencies are different than stocks. They don't have capital. They don't have earnings to speak of. They are somewhat of a vote for the country's well-being. But their prices are impacted by interest rate differentials. So if you look at the US in the, in the 1980s when prime was 21 and a half, uh, the 30-year treasury was 15 and the T-bills were 18, people were buying dollars. That went up like a rocket and we'll see that in a minute. They're impacted by the nominal level and the direction of trade flows. You know, the euro tends to be supported in part because it's a trade surplus zone. The US, in general, declines because we're a trade deficit zone. But the nominal level is also important. If you're just a minor player, then those swings, we used to, in the 80s, uh, trade, you know, Chuck and I used to trade in the Australian dollar. And it would be funny, we'd see an order for couple 747s where uh, Australia was going to have to convert do Australian dollars to US dollars to pay Boeing. And you'd see literally announcement drop. It's a small enough economy at the time, obviously much larger now. You know, going into the Olympics in Spain, uh, back when they actually had their own currencies, that currency kept rising because they were buying all sorts of stuff and people were getting ready to go to Spain. Government intervention, it's a place, you know, governments don't intervene that much present company accepted uh, in the stock markets. 
But in the currency markets, they feel free to jump right in and move it around. They'll, they'll sell, they'll buy. Japan probably is the biggest player these days in that. You know, no, we want our currency right here. China, it's a fixed currency. It's manipulated. That's government intervention. And at the end of the day, there's also this underlying asset performance. You know, is the country actually producing, like a company, something that somebody's going to care about? You know, if Spain had its own currency still, I mean, I don't think that they've really produced anything of interest to the outside world for the last 500 years. It's a great place to visit. There's some interesting things to see, but there's nothing that they make that's worthwhile. They're, if they were by themselves, their currency would, have, they would be in a trade deficit situation, and they, their currency would be continue to fall like a rock. On the other hand, Germany happens to produce a lot of things that we like. We buy cars, we buy other manufactured goods. We, they, they have really gotten it down. Guess what, if Germany were standing on its own, they're the ones that are really supporting the euro over the last few years. And there is this judgment of safety. When the airliner was shot down the other day, when Israel invaded, you notice treasury rates went down and the dollar went up a little bit. And that's because if a manager says, gee, I don't know what to do today with stuff, I'm going to go buy a treasury. And that happens all over the world. So that judgment of safety, no matter what we think about it, is back to the US dollar at this time. So as a relative value, let's go back in time. We have this period in the you know, very late 70s, early 80s, where the dollar just rocketed up. High, high rates in the US, um, Volcker plan, and everybody bought dollars. But then everybody realized, well, you know, while the Laffer curve works on a nominal basis, it doesn't work on a real basis. And we've got this deficit problem going on. Um, we also were starting to move towards recession. And for about 14 years, the dollar declined significantly uh, as those policies washed through. In the 90s, you know, we, we all know that federal budget deficit or surplus is not quite real. There's all these unfunded liabilities, but they actually showed a couple positives in that, that period of time. We we're having the tech boom. Everybody wanted to buy American stocks. Dollar goes up. And the period of time we're going to start talking about in a minute, 2002 to 2008, really began the hyper disaster in fiscal policy in the US, which drove the dollar downward really for the next uh, six years. So we get into the three phases of recent currency movement. For that period from 2002 to 2008, for example, I'm going to use the euro and the Australian dollar. Euro was up 78%. If you'd invested in euros in 2002 and got out in 2008, you would have been up 78%. Round numbers, without interest, without conversion costs, all those other good disclosures. And by the way, that's about a 50% decline in the US dollar value. So if we're buying something for Europe, it costs us 50% more. If you invested in the Australian dollar, it was up 86%, right through to 2008. Now, I picked July 2008, what I call IndyMac weekend, the first weekend in July 2008, is really the DMARC point. I think a lot of other people pick Lehman. I've always picked IndyMac because it actually was the breaking point. Euro was on a roll till then. We all know it was not on a roll for the next few months. It dropped like a stone. Australian dollars, same thing. And both of them kind of recovered between 2008 and 2010. But for the last, um, since from 2010 to 2014, the last four years, pretty much all currencies have traded flat in a little bit of a range. It's been kind of the uninteresting part of the market in many respects. Euro, Aussie, kind of the same. And you know, if you're in these currencies, if you're doing business there, it's 
significant differences, but from a portfolio standpoint, it really isn't that big. And you know, when you're thinking about it, I just want to mention something here as we move along. If you're thinking about how to deal in the currencies on a daily basis, uh, it, how many people here take the daily Fennig? Chuck Butler said, well, good. The rest of you need to sign up. Go to dailyfennig.com. But Chuck's been writing this since 1992, and he gives a great early morning overview of the markets. And I really suggest if you're interested in currencies, go to dailyfennig.com or everbank.com and sign up for this. It's free letter, no obligation, and all that. But when you're constructing a portfolio with currencies, you, know, you naturally think of you know, a number of different asset classes, whether it's in the growth area, but all sorts of emerging markets, large cap, small cap, you know, stable return, you got some uh, corporate bonds, some international bonds, some emerging market work. And then inflation protection. We were all kind of worried about, are we going to die in a trailer, right? We need to have something that's going to protect us from inflation. We have a lot of money today. If you get hyperinflation, you're not protected. We're going to be like uh, Breaking Bad in that little uh, uh, trailer out in the middle of the desert. So how do you build a portfolio that protects you against that? Now, what I had our wealth management team do is just run. I don't have any numbers really big up here because I didn't want to get into all the detail. Our wealth management team ran two scenarios from 2002 to 2008, and then 2002 to 2014. And the blue line is a typical American's portfolio of, of just US stocks and US bonds. I think it's on a 65-35 basis. A typical portfolio if you went to a wealth manager. The red line just added that same proportion, but added 20% of currencies and metals. And over this period of time, for the first six years of the 2000s, that portfolio gave a 50% better return with a significantly lower volatility. You know, banker talk for less total risk in a portfolio over that period of time. Very subtle, but very important. And for the whole period, even with the rocketing stock market we've had over the last five years, that portfolio still remains ahead. And you know, I'm not going to talk about your individual situation. We can, our wealth management team can talk to, to you about that if you like. But our conclusion has been now for the last 25, almost 30 years, actually it'll be 30 years next year, that adding a portion of, of currencies into a portfolio lowers your overall volatility, does provide actual solid return, and uh, reduces the overall risk in a portfolio. So you know, when you do, when, what kind of currencies do you pick for something like that? Well, just like a stock, you don't just pick one. You do it across multiple sectors. You don't look for next week, this year. This is an intermediate to long-term thing that you want to do. And balance when fundamental changes. Now, you don't have to do something this complicated. Our wealth management division uh, has a currency portfolio. As of July 21st, here's the allocation. And they'll manage that money. If you just want to say, give us I want to give you X dollars, I want to have that as my allocation to currencies, they'll take care of it. But if you want to do it yourself, we kind of like five different sectors around the world that we think you should really draw your attention. And I'm not going to go into great detail on these this morning, we'll talk about some of that this afternoon and Chuck will tomorrow. But the five sectors really are, are one of our favorite oil companies, it's sometimes called a country, Norway. Um, Canada, I think you're here. If you look at the Daily Fennig from this most recent Sunday, you can go to dailyfennig.com. There's a detailed account of why we like Canadian dollar as an American investor 
Um, and for a Canadian investor, you just cross the Canada out and don't put US dollars in uh, for the rest of these. Um, but as an American investor, why we like Canada? Australia, New Zealand. You know, we've been had this as our largest uh, portion of our investment or our world currency book really since we started. And I think people over that period of time have done extremely well uh, in most periods. You know, you can sort of switch back and forth, and Chuck will probably give you some additional uh, thoughts on that tomorrow about which one is more important to you. But it's definitely a resource-oriented currencies, and they are have performed very well, and they have a little bit of interest rate differential. In Singapore, we're really starting to think about this as the Switzerland of the Pacific Rim. You know, they've really created a situation where all roads tend to lead through Singapore. And the currency's improved. You know, they do run it virtually as a dictatorship. That's great if you're a currency investor. Uh, you may not want to be caned yourself, but I appreciate how, how hard they will look at the currency. And China. China is the play. We do expect at some point the bubble to pop. But year after year after year, as Chuck points out, they meet the target they set. When they say it's going to be 7.5% GDP, by God, it's 7.5% GDP growth. And there's lots of risk in there, but over the next you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, they are the market. And you need to be participating in that market one way or the other. And of course, metals. We think metals are currencies. And you can take your pick, whether it's platinum, palladium, gold, silver, it has to be part of your currency allocation. And I'm just going to sort of close here by noting that here's some currencies that we watch. And we've talked a little bit about New Zealand, talked a little about Nor Norway and Australia, China. You know, Brazil was something we're very interested in over the last few years, and it seems to have kind of burned out. We still have a lot of investors there. I think there is some possibility. But, you know, it, it just has tipped over the edge, and I think to a certain degree, uh, there may be other places to look. On the metal side, we do like platinum, we do like palladium as currencies. Um, and you can kind of see what these uh, total returns are over this period of time. It's not something to see is that you add it to your portfolio, and it's a great diversifying asset. So come see our breakout sessions this afternoon. Um, come see Chuck general session and breakout tomorrow and his uh, breakout in the afternoon. And I appreciate your time, and I think I've hit it, Eric, within 32 seconds of my uh, allotted time. Thank you very much. Have a great day.